humbling to have to preach after that preaching. And there's nothing more you can say than that about that, except that I'm paid to say more, so I will. Um, I've been uh, honored and privileged to work with great colleagues. They want to keep giving you gifts. And so uh, Karen wanted to make sure I had the gift of a tech air yet this morning. So thank you very much for that. Appreciate it. You know, appreciate the tech air. It had to be intentional because we hardly make airs. So it was good. In the first service, um, the worship planners, including Greg, had um, the congregation sing ancient words before I preached. I wasn't sure what that meant. <laughs> Took it a little personally. think about putting this message together I was thinking you know I probably ought to try to make it a good one you know like 43 years after 43 years try to get one good one out there uh, at the end and then I realized that 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 really is wrong thinking if there's anything else that has guided ministry and what worship is about it's about the Lord and about Jesus Christ, and about our focus and worship on him, and um, rather than try to make it a good one, you just try to say what you think the Lord has asked you to say to the people whom you think need to hear it. So this is about a journey. And we're all on a journey. And whenever you're ready to start a journey, you have a destination in mind. You want to get somewhere. You're going to start here and you're going to go there. And um, no matter how long the journey is, it can be a journey from Elmhurst to the city of Chicago. Or it can be a longer journey, whatever that might be. And you have an idea that I want to go from here to there and I need to have a route in mind. Um, now, I have been reminded by my lovely spouse that I obsess too much over which route to take. I have one rule of driving in Chicago, and that is uh, always avoid the Eisenhower. No matter which way you're going, don't get on the Eisenhower. Um, and so I obsess over how to get to the city and how to get back from the city by avoiding the Eisenhower. And I've taken us through some interesting neighborhoods on that journey. It's been great. But you have a route in mind. What's the route? If you were going to go from um, Chicago to Orlando and you put in your navigation system or your GPS or your phone or however you do it, whatever app you use, you'd type in, I want to go from Chicago, that's where I'm starting, my destination is Orlando, and that blue line, believe it or not, is the most direct route. Now, I know what you're saying. Oh, I know a better way to go than that. I'd never go that way because we're all smarter than a GPS, but this is what the most direct route is, not the gray route is an alternate route, and it'd probably take you three minutes further, and so I would never take that way. But this is the route you would take, and that's the way you would go. And it even tells you how much time it's going to take to get there. But what these navigation systems can't take into account is us, right? I mean, how many stops do you have to make, and when do you have to make them? It's an age thing, I get it, but you know, you got to make stops. When do you have to regularly eat? What might be a distraction for you that would cause you to veer off this route and go somewhere else? It may be 
a historical marker. It may be one of these scenic turnouts. It may be um, some town that you didn't realize was that close to that route, and you've always wanted to go there. So if we just take another couple hours, we can head there and see what's going on and go over there. Um, it may be something you know, completely you know, crazy, like a, um, like a factory outlet mall. Has anybody, anybody got detoured by a factory outlet mall? Anyone? Yeah, those are dangerous things to go past. I'd rather go past than stop, but we do once in a while. But see, a, a GPS, a navigation system, can only tell you the most direct route, but it doesn't take into account everything else, right? Life is a journey. It's not a destination. And it's filled with choices that we make and uncontrollable circumstances that we have no say over. Plans that are realized and plans that are scuttled. Christian singer and songwriter Michael Card once wrote that there's joy in the journey. And that's really true, right? There's a lot of joy in the journey. But there's also pain and difficulty and turmoil and fear and doubt and tragedy and the unexpected. Now those of us who call ourselves Christ followers believe that God is the one who guides our journey and accompanies us every step of the way. Even on the detours, even when we make choices, even when we take the most indirect route, even though he's given us a direct route, he's still with us all the way. Now when does the journey of a Christ follower begin? Does the journey of a Christ follower begin... Uh, when parents decide to have an infant baptized or dedicated, and as parents and as a family, they make the commitment to raise that child and to do everything within their power to raise that child to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Is, is that when the journey begins? We just led um, a group of uh, young people from our church through a, prof a profession of faith process. And on June 11, they'll stand before the congregation and they will make their public profession of faith. Is that when the journey begins? Some of you may have a particular moment in your life that you can say, this was a turning point in my spiritual life. This is when God got my attention and it, and it turned everything around. Is that when the journey began? Well, we have these markers and we like to think that that's when the journey began. God has a little different idea. In Jeremiah chapter 1, God says to the prophet Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Not once you were conceived, I knew you. Not once you were given birth, I knew you. Before you were in the womb of your mother, God knew you. And he had a reason and a purpose for you. He had a destination. You began that journey at that point. More pointedly, the Apostle Paul says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. I mean, this to me is mind-boggling. Before Genesis 1, 
When God started the creation of the world, he already knew you by name and started you on that journey. Before the creation of the world, God knew us. The beginning of the journey began in God's heart and mind and soul long before we were ever cognizant of the fact. Remember what it like, what it felt like to be chosen? You know, think of a time when you were chosen. Maybe, maybe you tried out for a team and they chose you to play. Or remember you tried out for a role in a play at school or somewhere and they chose you for that particular role. Um, or, or, or remember when you interviewed for jobs and somebody said, I, I'm choosing you. I want you to have this job. Or remember when um, you chose your spouse and they miraculously said yes. You felt chosen. I remember um, receiving a phone call from someone in leadership at Elmer's Christian Reformed Church telling me that the congregation had chosen me as their pastor. And even though I was already old and been in ministry for a long time, just, just the nature and the idea that, that I'd been chosen. I mean, it was shocking. An RCA pastor chosen for, chosen for a Christian Reformed Church. I mean, that's a miracle. But the sense of being chosen is a great feeling. A little bit later on in the book of Jeremiah, he reminds us that God had plans for all of us. He's got plans. Plans to prosper us and not harm you. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give it to you. I mean, there's some, there's some things that we get confused quite easily if we don't pay attention to what this says, you know. First of all, you know, we don't choose Jesus. We respond to his choice of us. God chose us before the foundation of the world. You didn't choose me. I chose you. Jesus chose you a long time ago. And he chose us for a particular purpose, to bear fruit. At Elmer's Christian Reformed Church, we say that, that we're chosen as God's people to be his source of shining light and living water. That's what it means to bear fruit. God has chosen each and every one of us to be his children and to bear fruit. And the genius of this plan that God has is not so much that he chose us, although that's pretty genius, but the way he has his people deployed. I mean, God is such a genius that he deploys his people all over the world. That as one of God's chosen people, your teachers and your nurses and your builders and your accountants and your musicians and your lawyers and your retailers and your excavators, you haul refuse, you pour concrete, you're stay-at-home parents, and I'm hoping that, that God even chooses retirees. God chooses people, and he deploys them everywhere for the purpose of bearing fruit. The journey of the Christ follower begins long before we're ever aware that we were chosen. Michael Card is right. There is joy in the journey. But we'd also be honest this morning to remember that 
There is pain and difficulty and turmoil and tragedy and suffering. Life is hard and faith is weak. I mean, immediately upon hearing God's call on his life, Jeremiah starts to express his own doubt about the whole thing. Alas, sovereign Lord, Jeremiah said, I do not know how to speak. I'm too young. He began to immediately express his own sense of inadequacy to be called by God to do anything. I mean, you know, and we have that, right? I mean, we have that. I mean, God could use me. How could God use me? God could never use me. I mean, you know, we think we're the first people who who said, oh, I I can't imagine God using me. I mean, if you read through the scriptures, almost every single leader that God chose in the Bible expressed the same kind of sense of inadequacy that Jeremiah expresses. Moses couldn't imagine how God could use him. Others couldn't imagine how God could use them. Jeremiah was too young. People wouldn't respect him. He would be inadequate. He wasn't a good public speaker. And certainly that proved to be the case if you read through the whole book of Jeremiah. People didn't listen to what he had to say. They argued. They pushed him to the margins. Not because he was too young and not because he wasn't a very good speaker. They just didn't like what he had to say. It was the word of the Lord and it was convicting and they didn't want to hear it. Jeremiah tried to quit being a prophet time and time again because it was so painful. But God encouraged him to persist. Somehow we've bought into the idea that our culture promotes that there should never be suffering or pain in life. That we should avoid it at all costs. And if we do have suffering or pain, we need to assign um, blame for it somewhere. It happened because of this. Someone did it to me. It happened because of that. If we would have only done this, it wouldn't have happened. All as a way of explaining and justifying pain that happens in our lives is part of simply living life. I mean, there are stories in the Bible where God not only allows for suffering, but God initiates suffering as a way for people to learn and to listen. But in all of that, what can't get lost in the midst of our suffering is there's a rung on the ladder to hang on to, which is this, and that is God is good. No matter what we're going through, you can't take away from the fact that God is good. It doesn't always feel like God is good. It doesn't always look like God is good. But God is always good. The Israelites were on a journey to the promised land. And they had to take a detour, and it was delayed because of their own choices. And God said, hey, you make these choices, you want to do your own thing? Well, here are the consequences. Forty years of wandering around in the wilderness. Lost, full of anxiety, wondering what was going to come next. Suffering, lack of food, not really sure if they had enough water at all. It was constant anxiety. Forty years. Eventually, they arrived at their destination in the promised land. Which simply reminds us that there's pain in the journey, but God is good. I mean, the Apostle Paul began to suffer once he embarked on his calling as an apostle. 
That's when he started experiencing real persecution and imprisonment and life threats and, and eventually death because, because he was faithful to Jesus. That's, that's what came. And so there's pain in the journey. But God is good. Jesus himself, the only truly innocent and perfect person who ever lived, <laughs> suffered rejection and disloyalty he was declared insane by his family members. Eventually, he was punished with the most painful death that human beings could ever experience in the most shameful way available in the first century. There was pain in the journey. But God is still good. I mean, I haven't escaped pain in my own life I mean, when you live life, you're going to have pain, right? And my parents divorced when I was 14. It was painful. I've had friends and family members die after long, horrible battles with physical illness and disease. We've experienced tragedy in our own life. We, we had over four miscarriages at one time. There have been a lot of painful experiences. Just, you know, being in ministry, it, it just can be painful sometimes. I mean, I, so I haven't told, I told this story at first service, so I ought to treat you equally, Right? You know, so not everybody's heard this story. Only a few people, but but there was a time uh, where at Christ Church of Oakbrook, I was threatened by a guy with a knife. Apparently, my sermon wasn't that delightful that day. I mean, what happened was I was in charge of the singles ministry, and you know, a couple hundred kids would come on Sunday night, and they'd all be there, and they'd all be excited, and you know, they'd all you know do their ministry thing, and then they'd all just kind of take off. And well, who's going to clean up, right? Clean up, clear up, turn off the lights put the alarm on. That was my job. I was the last one in the building. And when I walked out of the building that night, there was a guy in the parking lot waiting for me with a knife. Now, he had every reason to be there uh, and to threaten me because we had asked him not to come back any longer because people found him threatening, they thought. And I'm going, he just wants to prove the point. I mean, there's nothing worse than being in a dark parking lot at 11 o'clock at night with a guy standing there with a knife in his hand ready to do you in. And through only God's intervention, you know, young people, they go out for coffee after their meeting and then they come back to get their cars because they carpooled. They all, some of them started to pull in right when he was coming after me with a knife. And they called the police and they intervened. And da, 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 da. I mean... Who knew? They did, in, the, in seminary, I did not learn that course, okay? There's pain in the journey. But God is always good. God uses other men and women to touch and shape us. Whenever we meet someone new, our lives are changed forever. We're never the same again. I mean, you don't have to have a long-lasting relationship with this person that you just met. Just the very fact that you met a new person that day. Now your life is different because you met that person. That's how delicate life can be. And that's how lives can be shaped by other men and women. Moses had Aaron. Elijah had Elisha. Paul had Timothy. God put people in their lives to be companions and disciples and mentors and successors and advisors. God uses people. That's why in the beginning, when it says, uh, it is not good for man to be alone, 
because we're supposed to be in a community with one another. And when God came to Abraham, he said, I'm going to make you great. No, I'm going to make you the father of a nation of people, a community of people. And this community of people is going to be God's source of shining light and living water in the whole world. And when Jesus did ministry as God himself, God incarnate, he didn't go it alone. He had a group of at least 12 who were closest to him. Other people make all the difference in the world. At a recent elders meeting, we went around the room and answered the question, who's had the most profound impact on your spiritual life and why? And as we went around the room, you began to understand what a, what a rich heritage there is in the family of God and what a sacred moment it is when somebody asks that question. And the answers had to do with parents, mothers, fathers, grandparents, teachers, coaches, pastors. You see, God uses people. At the retirement celebration on Tuesday night, I mentioned some of the important people in my life that God has used to shape me and challenge me and affirm me, to hold me accountable, to love me. God has used people to have a profound impact on my life. I mean, some of the people are here today. I mean, my family's here today. Yeah, I, okay, so can I have a personal moment? Is that okay? All right. So my 91-year-old mother is here today. And I think we should thank her for who she is. Yeah, St. Doris. My parents divorced when I was 14. My brother was 11. And one of us was just uncontrollable. I mean, my brother. Oh. And I've spoken to singles groups before and talked to divorced parents and about, you know, what is it, you know, how do you make it through divorce? What do you do? And how do you raise two boys who are relatively successful and one who's normal and then me? How do you do this? I'll tell you my mom's secret. Can I tell you a secret? Every morning when I got up, I'd go to the kitchen. My mom was at the kitchen table with her cup of coffee and her Bible. That's the way you do it. That's the way you do it. You know, she prayed me through life. You need other people in your life. If you're a parent, it's never too late to start praying for your kids and for others. But God uses people to shape us and form us into the kind of people. And one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is from the book of Esther, you know. So, um, you know, the, the, the setting is that uh, the king of Persia got rid of his first wife. And then he needed a new wife. And so, you know, you know you, you, have you heard of the show The Bachelor? All right. It, it began in the Bible. You, it, read Esther. He hosts his own bachelor thing, right? He has all these women show up, but he's going to choose a queen out of all these people, all these women who line up. He gets only the best women. They all line up, and he's the bachelor. I mean, it's great. I mean, there's nothing really new under the sun. So one of the people who's in this parade of women who might be chosen as queen is this uh, Israelite woman named Esther. But she doesn't tell anybody that she's an Israelite. 
doesn't tell anybody about her religious background or ethnic background. She kind of keeps that under the radar screen. And lo and behold, the king of Persia chooses Esther to be his new queen. Well, that's a great story, right? It didn't get any better than that. You know, Israelite girl makes good in Persia. I can see the headlines right next to the bachelor, chooses his new wife. Oh, the story gets better than that. God chose her before the foundation of the world. A plot to exterminate all the Israelites was uncovered. And Esther intervened on behalf of the whole nation. And one of my favorite pieces of scripture is in the book of Esther. God chose you, Esther, for just such a time as this. For just such a time as this. It was part of her destiny and her destination before the foundation of the world to be the person who would be chosen to be the queen of Persia to allow the nation of Israel to live and to thrive. God uses people. On the journey, we always reach our destination. I can guarantee you this morning that you will reach your destination. Now, it might not be your destination, but I can guarantee you that you will always reach God's destination for your life. We don't always know what that destination might be, but you will always get there and you will always show up at the end. Now, we're not the best direction takers in life. We like to make our own way. We like to carve out our own path. We like to determine our own destiny. And just because it doesn't look like a path that God wants us to go down doesn't mean that it isn't the path that God wants us to go down. I mean, from a human perspective, Jesus walked down the wrong path. (laughs) To be king of kings and lord of lords, that's not the path you should go down. You shouldn't have constant conflict with religious leaders. You shouldn't engage in friendships with people who have questionable character. You shouldn't emphasize humility and sacrifice and service if you really want to get to the top. And then eventually he dies on a cross and is buried. That's not the way to become a Messiah. But God's ways are not our ways. I mean, my dream destination in life was to be a teacher and a coach. And God, through, I guess, miraculous circumstances, intervened in my life to give me a new direction. And I was a reluctant follower. (laughs) I mean, I looked for every reason possible not to honor God's will for my life to become a pastor. I felt inadequate and unprepared. I had some history in my life that some can attest to here this morning that probably wouldn't allowing me to be even employed in a church. (laughs) But that was God's purpose. And there was no derailing it. And I can't imagine anything that I could have done in life that would have been more meaningful and more fulfilling and given me more purpose in my life than being a pastor. God's ways are not our ways. Now, if you don't remember anything else from this message, this is the most important thing that you should remember. God chose you. 
Every single one of us. Before the creation of the world, God chose you. And I think it's important for us to affirm those things in church. So we're going to affirm, right? You see this? On three, I want you to say that. One, two, three. That's pretty good. However, this is what always happens when the congregation is asked to respond. God chose me. Someone might hear me. I don't want anybody to hear it. God chose me. I'm thinking that to know that God chose you might be a pretty good thing in your life. It might be something you want people outside of this room to even know about in here. But you're in the safety of a crowd. You you shouldn't even be embarrassed to say, God chose me in this room, right? So one more time on three, but pretend you mean it this time. One, two, three, God chose me. Excellent. Let me just leave you with these words from the Apostle Paul. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that God, who began a good work in you, God, who began a good work in you, will always carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. And so, Lord, we give you thanks for who you are. We thank you for the journey, for the direction, for the guidance. We thank you for the twists and turns, for the detours. We thank you for um, rescuing us when we make bad choices and get off course. But you always welcome us back with your love and grace and mercy. Thank you for choosing us. Reminding us that you knew us before the creation of the world. And that we have a purpose in life. To be your source of shining light and living water. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, We're going to continue to give thanks to God for all of his good gifts to us through our tithes and offerings.